0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that your brain activity is as unique as your fingerprint. And new research has come out that suggests your brain activity could be used like a fingerprint. And scientists use functional MRI or fMRI, to create connectivity profiles that allowed researchers to identify brain activities of more than 100 people. Now, scientists use individual brain connectivity to give them specific insights about your intelligence or personality. And by the way, at 40 Years of Zen, we can teach your brain to have new connections it didn't have before, which is part of what we do with one of the many different forms of neurofeedback we have there. But here, they they said it has implications for how scanning brains could be used to. De- to develop individualized care, but I predict, 20 years from now, it's not like you're gonna need stickers on your head or electrodes the way we do it now. You're gonna be able to pick these signals up from a distance, which means you'll walk in front of your iPhone 20 years from now and it won't have to recognize your face because it recognizes your brain. How cool is that, right? Or scarier than hell, one of the two, you decide. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRCLED, LED. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is a high-performance psychologist who works in the trenches and high-stakes environments where there's no luxury for mistakes or hesitation or failure to respond. We're talking with people from every major sport, Olympians, Fortune 100 CEOs, as well as some of the biggest names you've heard of in terms of artists and musicians, He's a revered speaker on human performance, and you've probably seen him in print and TV and things like that. He co-founded Compete to Create with Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, who built a framework to enhance high-performance cultures by focusing on mindset training for individual people in cultures. I'm talking about none other than Michael Gervais, who has spent many, many years unpacking and decoding how great performers use their minds to pursue the very boundaries of what we're capable of as humans. And he runs a podcast called Finding Mastery where he conducts interviews on that. So you can see why I'd wanna have him on Bulletproof Radio because I care a lot about this. The, The idea is, look, you finally figured out what to eat, you finally figured out how to turn your brain on, you got a lot of energy, what are you gonna do with this newfound energy? Well, let's get some good ideas from Michael. Michael, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me, and um, I, you know I've listened to your podcast for a long time, and really have enjoyed the, your point of view and the guests and what you tease out of them. So, thank you.
1: Uh, well, thank you for listening. I'm I'm always honored when uh, when I find that someone's listening to the podcast, uh, and I'm I'm pretty non-denominational about that. I was in uh, I was sitting in an airplane, and the stewardess walks up and, and goes, "Look what I have!" And, and it was a copy of the Bulletproof Diet, and she's like, "I listened to your show." I'm Like, whoa, someone listens to my show because. I mean, I, I see the numbers, and you see the numbers on finding mastery. You know how many people, but it's not personalized. So anytime someone says they've heard it, I'm like, "Hey, that, that's kind of cool." So I, I I appreciate that you listen. It actually matters to me, and I, I always appreciate reviews too. Uh, just just it makes it real, right? Very cool. Uh, do you deal with that on on finding mastery? You you're sort of like, okay, I'm interviewing someone, I'm having a good time, but then you don't really know that people are listening. Like like you know, cognitively, but you, you don't have. The yeah,
2: I mean, the, I think the whole idea for conversations that are working to get to the source is that you've got to get past all of the media mind, all of the thoughts of approval and to really get into that place where you're helping the other person or in this case, me myself, is just working to get to the truth, the authentic truth of um, what we understand, and what we don't understand. And so, yes, to do that, we've got to fade away, you know, that there are lots of people listening. And so that, yeah, it's a little bit of a, of a, a challenge.
1: Now, you call yourself a curious adventurepreneur. What the heck is that?
2: Yeah, well, okay, so, I mean, it's not hard to put those three thoughts together, but curious. Okay, so the beginner's mind and really wanting to learn and understand and do so at a progressive clip. And then adventurepreneur is a hyphened word where, um, you know, I I really do value um, the entrepreneur venture And the frontier that is required to do that well. And I've spent my life in the backcountry, you know, working out and not always just the backcountry, but I've spent my life effort working with people in the backcountry, living in the backcountry to better understand how do people operate when there's swift and harsh consequences. And so that adventure part of life, you know, I don't see life as a journey. I see it as an adventure. And I think that that you know that those three words matter to me, and so that's that's how I frame it up.
1: Okay, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And you talk about not having the luxury of of second guessing and things like that. One of the things that that caught my attention is that you worked with uh, or you worked on the Stratos mission, the the guy with Red Bull who jumped out of a hot air balloon from the very edge of space and all that, uh, which was from 128,000 feet Uh, What crazy stuff. What, what did you do as a high performance psychologist when you're working with Felix? I am not even going to try and say his last name, Baumgartner, but it's probably French. So I probably said
2: it wrong. No, that was it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, you know, I'm classically trained as a psychologist with a specialization, if you will, in sport and performance. And then there's no such thing really as a subspecialty, but that subspecialty would be consequential or high stakes environments. And And so what do we do? Um, We meet the person where they are. We understand the framework that they're working from. So understand his framework. And by the way, Dave, this is all, anything I'll talk about is already publicly available. Uh, Of course. Yeah. I mean, as a a
1: psychologist, you're you're bound by certain things. You're not allowed to say it. You're not allowed to say it. Just tell me. That's cool.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. They just did a 30 for 30 on the psychology of his jump, which, um, you know, shared much of what we're talking about here. And so what do we do? We figure out like, what is the sturdy, uh, nimble, flexible framework that he wants to create to do this thing that's never been done before. And if you're going to do stuff that no one has ever done, let alone you yourself, you know, that's a thin herd tip of the arrow type of experience for people where there's not a whole lot of data points to bounce off of. So uh, essentially what happened for him is that he had an intense, anxious response to being in the suit. And we could call it claustrophobia, but it was just an intense, you know, anxious response. So we just used good science, walked through um, systematic desensitization, walked through flooding protocols to help him extinguish fear and um, just backfilled with, you know, any mental skills that would be able to um, or not that he would need to be able to employ to be able to do something that like, was incredibly dangerous. So, so um,
1: what was the number one thing that, that helped with that claustrophobia response? Like, like, kind of the top the top thing of that list?
2: Well, I, you know, it's not lost on you, probably, that a systematic desensitizing to a, a phobic response is the system itself is, I think, the good stuff, right? So, yep. we could say that the tactic of breathing or the awareness of self-talk are are important skills, which they are, but it's the it's the scientific method that you walk back by scaling up on a piece of paper from one to a hundred, you know, what at one, what is the smallest trigger you have thinking about the, uh, the response and then all the way up to a hundred, like what is the full panic experience feel like? And just listing, you know, every 10 or so, you know, uh, increments, what are those triggers? And so that, that in of itself is a really strong um, concrete mechanical way to help somebody externalize this internal sensation of fear.
1: So, so the hack, the hack was really just sort of exposure therapy for lack of a better word.
2: Well, yeah, that's what it is. Those are the two types of exposure therapy, you know, flooding or systematic desensitization. And I, I you know, I wouldn't call it a hack. I would call it like, um, that's a lot of work now. And, oh, yeah. you know, like it's an incredible investment that requires incredible vulnerability, incredible courage, and a, a very disciplined approach to backfilling the mental skills to be able to do the thing that you want to do. And I think that that's such an eloquent marker for, for so many of us, you know, those are requ- vulnerability, courage, and a disciplined, almost relentless approach to develop the skills necessary.
1: Uh, that relentlessness is, uh, is really important. And I, I, I admit, I was baiting you by calling it a hack because I, uh, I've heard uh, some of your podcasts, You're like, I don't like hacks and hacks aren't real. And, and uh, and I, I look at it as like, you find me the fastest path to get to the results that I want, and and that's the hack. And, and if there is a faster way to get the results, that's the new hack, right? Where, where it's about excellence in choosing techniques that save you time and energy, right? And so I, I would have also thought, being an untrained psychologist, in other words, not a psychologist, <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, um, right. I... Uh, I would say well hey like would EMDR work for that like like what, is there a faster path to turn off the inner response and and for people listening EMDR is eye movement to social response it's a way for certain traumas to lie to stop responding to them very quickly but but the idea here is otherwise like oh I'm a bad person because I I have claustrophobia or whatever it is or I'm weak or it's a moral failing or you know I'm not good enough or whatever the voice in your head says right um but to, to go from there, like okay, is exposure therapy going to be the the fastest path or something else? But when when I'm using the word hack, it's it's like hey, it means you have control of it, and and that's what hackers do—they take over control. And and so sometimes people respond negatively to the word. But I actually wanted to go deep with you on okay, like you know what what is the what's the issue with the term the term hack, um, uh, given that context?
2: Yeah, cool. Well, I think the principles are beautiful that you just said. Like, what is the most efficient way to Grow to change, like that is what I think about. Like pr- progression and like really committing and organizing one's life for that aim is rare. It's hard. Yeah. And what I found is that you know the word hack uh, to me now this is just me, and I, I'm not suggesting that um, there aren't that we're n- both of us are not looking for the most efficient ways to find change. Oh yeah. But the word hack conjures up a shortcut. It conjures up a path that um, is not willing or wanting to do the hard yards. And so there's, to me, there is no shortcut to self-discovery. There's no shortcut to awareness and mindfulness. There is no shortcut to, you know, that deep, rich um, ability to authentically express yourself in any environment. Matter of fact, it's the opposite of a hack. You know, the hack is to, in your words, is to have the most efficient way to grow Got it. But the most efficient way to grow coupled with the desire and the crave to be in difficult situations. And when you can get those two things to hang together, to coalesce, there's something really powerful that takes place for, you know, the the adventure or the path of, let's call it something really heavy, which is wisdom. Uh-huh. Yep. And th- there's just there's just no hack for wisdom. <laughs> now there's effective ways to learn, you know, but... Um, anyways, so that's where that's where I sit on that that term, and then, um, you no. Know,
1: but so. well, it, it, it's interesting you talk about facing uncomfortable situations, and and certainly growth is is important, uh, and and sometimes pain is a part of that. Like I decided, having weighed three hundred pounds uh, in the past, and uh, really having had some issues with just. Being willing to do almost anything except be alone, I'm like, hey, I'll just go fast in a cave with no one around for ten miles for four days. So I'll just deal with hunger and loneliness. You know, okay, not exactly a super comfortable situation, um, but uh, you know, a meaningful way to, to you know deal deal with whatever's going on and make sure that that you've got you've got a handle on it. Um, however, I could also have have gone to a psychologist, uh, you know, Lucy from Peanuts, and, and paid my nickel. And sat on a couch for twenty years talking about those things, right? And still been on the path, still been feeling the pain, but not gotten the same results. And and it's it's looking for that word that says, "All right, how did I how did I do it with with less work?" And I'm even going to say less pain, because I I like to think, and I want to get your idea on this, Michael. If if someone came to you tomorrow and said, "Look, I can snap my fingers and make you fully enlightened with all the wisdom in the world, right? No no cost to you." Do you want it? What would you say? Sure. Right. But then yeah. you avoided all the pain, all the struggle, all yeah. the learning, all the wisdom. But then, right, no,
2: right. <laughs> now, now, then then it is: what do you do with that wisdom? Yeah, of course. Right. So if if my answer was, you know, yes, but I've got this deep crave, this real ache to express and to authentically help people do the same, then I'm going to do something with it. You know, that oh, is of course. right. So I, I've been so. Okay, let me flashback why I said yes so easily is that um, Buddha said something really powerful and said enlightenment can take lifetimes or the next moment, so yeah. keep working. <laughs> so when you say, you know, can you have it at the, I've been working my life for that. So what do you, what do, why would I say no? That's exactly. What, now, but if somebody hasn't been working their life and they're like, hey, I could give you whatever, a gold medal, enlightenment, call it whatever you want, and you don't have to work for it. Well, that's going to end up like, in the drawer somewhere, you know, where it's like not valued at all because you didn't earn it. And so there, it's a, your dilemma is multifaceted, which I I appreciate. And there's a texture to it, right? Which is, I don't think, and this is, um, this is now me putting on like a, a theoretical approach, not just like Mike's idea, But my understanding, and I can't point to rich data on it, but it's more of a culmination of insights from research, is that people change because of pain. And the removal of pain is actually a problem in friendship. It's a problem in codependency, and it can be a problem in life coaching as well as psychology. So the best trained professionals and the most incredible friends do not take the pain away. Yeah. they help you understand where the pain come from. They sit with you in the pain, they share the pain with you, and then stand by your side as you're working through it for a, some sort of insight. And so, you know, like it's textured.
1: It's textured. The, the people who take away the pain are quite often codependent, right?
2: Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, And we do funny things to ourselves to take away our own pain. We'll drink. We'll, we'll flip on social media, TV, we'll talk trash about other people. Listen
1: to podcasts. I'll, oh wait.
2: Just Yeah, we do things ourselves to <laughs> avoid pain. Like it's hard. Like it's really freaking hard. And there's no shortcut for that. And I think that you would appreciate this insight is that the best performers, which I mean, when I say performer, I'm talking about a thinker and a doer, mm-hmm. the best thinker, and doers in the world manage stress better than anyone else so they are better at stress they understand how to not just cope with it but to use it and stress is you know as you know distress and you stress distress is hard you stress is wonderful still challenging and the best performers in the world are able to manage stress better than the rest of us and so i just say that because that's for most of us that's what pain is stress
1: is that a learned skill? That stress management.
2: There is a biological component to it, you know. There is some neuropeptide Y that people are born with at different variances. There is some genetic coding that we think could be at play, and as you know, you, as you well respect, omni genetics and genetics, and you know, it's a wild west right now. So we don't exactly know, but I would put my stake in the ground that there is some genetic coding there. There is some environmental stuff, and there is some learned behaviors, right? And so yeah. all of that does impact our psychology right and and our psychology what's wonderful about psychology is that we can change it it's like software like we can change it
1: It, some of the studies are really interesting if your mother was exceptionally stressed before and, and during conception and pregnancy your stress resilience biologically epigenetically will be set lower than someone else, or potentially higher in some circumstances where it's a compensatory thing. Uh, right? But it, it has an effect that is outside of your immediate conscious control, but it's something that you probably can change epigenetically uh, and certainly with the right supplements, training, uh, mindset, practice, and all that stuff. I uh, My experience is that you can take someone who is not resilient and is not able to tolerate stress and with careful, conditioning programming changing the environment you can make someone highly resilient have you had that same experience i mean you're you're a a, a psychologist around high performance um you know d- different path than i have or, or do you think there's people they're just there's a the delicate flower there always can be delicate flower and <laughs> just how it is
2: yeah i mean yeah there's, there's some genetic coding like that we need to embrace and okay i would not suggest that if i was if you were let's say um You had this incredible mass. You are, let's say, 275 pounds and 9% body fat and a large amount of type two fast twitch fibers. I wouldn't suggest, and nor would you suggest that you know you invest in running marathons. So this genetic like matching knowing your genetic coding, matching that into an intelligent environment that's gonna support and challenge you, and then this relentless, uncommon investment in the internal world. Is like that. that, That's there's no real there's no secrets by the way, right? But those are three key and I'm sorry elements to finding your very best.
1: It it's true that focusing on your strengths. That's one of the the laws that came out in Game Changers. Is you know if you're built to be a power lifter, don't be don't be a triathlete. You're not going to like your life. And in fact, I I had an Olympic medalist uh, and CEO of a DNA testing company. On the podcast recently. And it was funny because I was 2% better than the Olympian in terms of uh, the type two muscle fibers. So I, I'm built to like break things and pick them up, but not run very far. So if there's a tiger chasing me, I'm supposed to pick up the 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 triathlete, break them over my knee, and throw them to the tiger so I can get away. It's very clear. It's <laughs> very good. Uh, <laughs> but good to uh, know that. I was, but I was a little bit better than, than the uh, than the athlete. You could kick my ass. But the guy who was the most ripped was the CEO of the company, and he was totally ninety percent genetically supposed to be an, an endurance runner, but he had you know bigger shoulders and biceps than the Olympic athlete or me. And you're like that's weird because we, we do have some control there. What do you do? When someone comes in and and they're like, I want to be the world's best. And you're like, you're not genetically set up for that. Or like, that's going to be way more of a challenge for you than a normal person. What do you say to them?
2: You know, I, it's interesting. I I don't know because I don't (laughs) spend time with them. You know,
1: (laughs) know, I fire them as patients. Tell them to get out. Okay. Got it.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's probably useful to give a little bit of a landscape. The way, the way that I organize my life is in working laboratories and I have one or two clients a month. That's it. Okay and we spend eight hours in one day and it's non-conventional. The traditional model doesn't work for me, which is like this 45 minute, you know, pay as you go. Like it just doesn't work. So it's an intense exhausting day to get to insight with a real rich plan uh, to invest in growth. And so I'm fortunate at this point to that, the people that I'm spending time with are already tip of the arrow performers. And they're saying, hey, listen, I I, I want to grow. I'm still, I'm already like the gentleman I just spent time with, he announced that he's going on tour and it sold out in 22 minutes, like across the globe. They're already exceptional at what they do. And so what my experience has been is that most people are looking for peace. They're looking for contentment. They're looking for um, a better way of living in the doing that they're doing. And there's a model that I think that we're staring at right now, which has been passed on, I think by at least two generations, like our grandparents, if you will, our, mm-hmm. our great grandparents, is that, that we need to do more to be more. Yeah. And I need to do extraordinary to be extraordinary. And I'm watching right now, right in front of my eyes, the best in the world flip that model. And they're saying, no, 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 that's not what it is. I need to be more. I want to be more. And let the doing flow from there. I want to be more grounded, more present, more authentic, more creative, more expressive, and let all of my doing, all of my training, if you will, flow from that orientation. And it's a it, it's refreshing to hear those conversations from people that you would think are primarily externally driven to be the best. And they're saying, no, 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 I want to be my best. And yeah. it, it is, it's a, that in and of itself, that, it, It's kind of begging the question that you ask, like, what do you say? What I'm hearing is that people want to be their, their best, not the best, but they're already the best.
1: Right. And And so they're committed to the personal improvement, not comparing themselves to others.
2: Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's a disavowment. There's a, there's an emptiness when you're chasing the temporary Mm -hmm. and then you achieve the temporary like you're on the podium, national anthems, you know, or you got that million-dollar first millions or whatever, and it's like, okay, is that it? You know, is, it, is that? Oh God, what am I doing? <laughs> and I, I th- there was a game-changing moment for me where this young, it was early in my career, about f- seventeen years ago now, and, and this brilliant little gymnast had the national anthem playing. She uh, was top podium, and she was crying, and the whole world thought that. She was the icon of achievement and she, you know, that, Oh my gosh, she's really feeling it on the podium. And when she got off, she said, did you see I was crying? I said, yeah. And she said, um, I'm no different. I thought that this was going to change me and (laughs) I'm still miserable. I love that. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a dark road. There's a dark path. There's a dark side to performance for sure. Elite performance.
1: I've had two situations in my life that were like that. Uh, The first, I was 22, maybe 23, and I sold the first thing that was ever sold over the internet. It was a T-shirt that said caffeine, my drug of choice, and we didn't have the name e-commerce. No one had ever done it, and I got in Entrepreneur magazine. They're like, "Hey, this fat kid in a double extra large shirt is selling stuff over this inner something or another." No one's ever heard of the internet back then. And you know, historically, like, "Oh, that's really cool." At the time, like, I'm just trying to pay for my college here. And I got, I got nothing. So this is you know, a cool thing. And um, so I, I'm like, I'm famous. Like I've been in Entrepreneur magazine. I'm getting phone calls from reporters all the time. And. I was still anxious and miserable and didn't even know I was anxious, but I was, I was not happy at all. I didn't change anything. So like fame doesn't do it. Uh, and like, I don't care about fame and then 26, I make 6 million bucks and and I I told a friend and this is, this is in game changers on both of these, um, the new book, but I, I told a friend at the same company where we'd all made more money than we had any business making. Like I'll be happy when I make 10, right? Because I was no happier with the money. And so when I look at the results from these, you know, uh, almost 500 people I interviewed in Game Changers. I asked them that question that you've heard on on the show: uh, the three most important pieces of advice. Not one person said fame, power, or money. Like, like it, it, it didn't even rate one blip on there, right? And. Man, I wish someone had told me that when I was 20 because I, I was absolutely convinced that those things were, were going to be the key to happiness. And it sounds like your athlete, your Olympic athlete, was saying, I'm gonna get the gold medal and it's going to make me happy or it's gonna give me peace or give me whatever state I want, and it and it did nothing.
2: Yeah, right. and that's, you know, I, it it almost feels, though, saying and talking about it in this way can almost feel elitist in some ways, and I don't ever want that to no, be it, the case. it's not because, meant
1: to be. It, it's yeah. when you've actually done it, it isn't what you think it is, right? That,
2: Right. Yeah. And then, but if you haven't done it and you are struggling and you look across the, the classroom or you look across, um, wherever you are and and, and you see people with nicer shoes, you see people with a nicer car, with a nicer home and a more luxurious, happy looking life that it, at some level, it really is healthy to want better. Yeah. And, and so, there's a trap of always wanting better. And something happens in, in the thin herd of rare space for, 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 for performers is that if you don't give up the search at some level, it, you're constantly chasing the next thing, the next, I don't know, the gadget or thing that will help you be better. And there's a, there's a healthy part to wanting to be better. And there's also a really important part to say, wait, everything I need is already inside me. And it doesn't feel that way when you look and you're like, but I got broken shoes and my car barely starts and fill in the blanks and you know I've got a leaky roof. So, it you know life is challenging and it's hard. I think I think life is really hard and there's that's why I go back to like I don't think there's a shortcut. There's just really ev- embracing this incredible adventure of unknow- of not knowing.
1: Let's go back to the recording artist who sold out in twenty-two minutes. Okay, here's a man or a woman um, who is at the top of, of their game, clearly making millions of dollars. If you sell a global tour like that, you don't have to worry about money, uh, right? And you know, theoretically, a th- oh, fair point. <laughs> theoretically, <laughs> and <clears throat> all the more,
2: more money, more problems.
1: Well, okay, that fair point. Money does bring its share of problems, and, and there's lots of unhappy rich people because they're afraid of losing it. I'll give you that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but. Uh, there's it, Dave, it, it,
2: Dave, Dave, sorry. Yeah. I I know you're rolling here. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. I just like, like it could be that way. That's, you know, I just wanted to say, I don't believe more money, more problems. I believe that, you know, I, I'd like to hear how you think about money, but I think money is a incredible amplifier, incredible oh, tool, you know, like,
1: yeah. All right. Let, let's yeah. talk about money and we'll, we'll get back to the recording guy with that question. Um, I, I've been blessed like you have, I, I imagine to, to spend time with, people who have more money than they'll ever know what to do with, like, like I, I helped to sponsor um, the XPRIZE Visioneering uh, uh, conference this year. This is a room with a couple hundred people with hundreds of millions of dollars each. They're, they're putting you know, 10 million dollars behind solving the world's next big problem.
2: How um, radical.
1: And it's, it's such an inspiring thing, because you know the room is full of people who have money, and, and to a T, they'll tell you, I, I, I have been blessed with this wealth, most of them made it themselves, some of them got it from their parents, uh, but I've got to do something good with it. It, it creates a moral obligation uh, to, to do good things. And, and they're, they're not Scrooge McDuck, they're not Mr. Smithers, and they're, they're absolutely out to say like, what the heck do I do with all this that's gonna have the maximum impact? And, and those are people for whom the money didn't buy the happiness, it was th- the impact that they're having with or without the money, and and the people have realized that, that helping other people Feels good. It, it, so altruism changes your brain, changes your uh, it, it changes your biology, your neurotransmitters, and it's actually a selfish act because we enjoy helping people. We enjoy knowing that we fed a billion people or that we sucked the carbon out of the air or wh- whatever the that was the, the prize that I helped to sponsor. Uh, but um, so so there's that mindset. But you also can go to like a venture capital conference and you see a bunch of like fearful people who are just I don't know who to trust. Uh, because I have money and people might want my money and, and I might lose it and I might have a big tax bill and I don't know what to do. And, and they can be in a really dark place. And, and I think it, they both have equivalent amounts of money. So i like, Oh my God, look at this opportunity. And other ones are like, Oh, I could lose it. It's clearly psychology. That's the difference. Do you
2: agree? Oh, a thousand percent. And like what we're talking about is there's two types of psychology. It's too simple to say that there's two parts that I'm interested in. There's psychological framework. And then there's the mental skills. So the framework is really the way that you make sense of events, how you understand how you fit in the world and how you're making sense of like how the world is going. So psychological framework is really it's the heavy stuff, it's the big foundational pillars, you know, to build the house upon. And then the mental skills are the 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 skills and tools to be able to manage stress, to be able to manage an internal way of living. That allows you to adjust to the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown. And that, that, you know, the way that you think about money and the way you think about other people, the psychological framework, I don't know, there's lots of different ways to think about it, but it, it tends to boil down. To, I think you might agree to, to either threat or opportunity, you know, is a yeah. mindset of abundance or a mindset of constriction. And when we get really reductionist, which I'm not a fan of is like, we could boil down to make it simple, two types of thoughts. Thoughts that create constriction, psychologically and physiologically. And then thoughts that create expansion, right? Which is, you know, space, if you will. And at the end of the day, one day I think we'll be able to observe thoughts. The problem with psychology, or a problem with psychology, is that we can't see it. We can only see the artifact. You know, we can see uh, everything, as you know, from HRV to EEG. Like, we can see artifact of stuff, but we can't actually see the source. And it's a little bit like gravity. We can't see gravity yet. And, yeah. but we know it exists. We know it's, it has a great impact, but we, we can't actually see the material of it one day, maybe. Right. Yeah. So how do we get better at the end of the day? You know, are we measuring artifact or are we trying to increase awareness of our internal mechanisms, right? Like our framework and our skills, basically our self-talk, if you will. So that, that's the tricky part of the invisible.
1: There's this Buddhist notion of uh, of the hungry ghost, uh, which is one of the the realms of hell. And this is one where everyone walks around with distended bellies, and no matter what they eat, they're always hungry. So they can never be satisfied, which is a, a, probably a common problem here in the West—not just with food, but with with no matter what it is that they're they're not satisfied. And I, I certainly had some of that going on early in my life, uh, and realized that you know that that's not where satisfaction comes from, and, and that changed it. But but there are an enormous number of people out there who who are dealing with that right now, um, saying you know no, no matter what, what I have in, in my career my life you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied, uh, therefore I'm not happy. Um, what is your advice? Because uh, I know this happens at the highest level too. Uh, uh, the people who like your Olympic athlete, hungry ghost. <laughs> I'm I'm going to I'm going to eat this gold medal and it's going to satisfy me. No, I'm still hungry. It's horrible. What's your advice for for dealing with that? Uh, whether it's the high level or low level performers.
2: I really appreciate the question because I'm going to give you an answer that I'll give you an easy answer. Tell me it's a, a coffee. Co- come
1: on. You <laughs> know, it's coffee. Okay. Yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the easy answer is like, I, I I don't, I'm not in the business of advice giving. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't, I mean, like each person is so complicated and different that what's right for one person is totally opposite for somebody else. It feels that way at least. And then, but then when we get down into it, it's like, The best thing I would hope for is to help that person feel that discontent, feel that emptiness, feel the hollowness, feel what that's like. And then then they can make a decision about how they're going to organize their life from that point forward. And I I don't know. There's probably if we did, if we could figure out the right research, there's probably like you need to hear something seven times Mm -hmm. and then and feel it. And then all of a sudden you're like, right. (laughs) You know, low level hamburger meat is It gives me a headache. (laughs) And then for, for me, maybe I need to hear it 15 times. I need to feel it 15 times and I go, right, it's the hamburger meat or it's the, it's the people that I'm around, whatever, 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 fill in the, the, the thing that I think that there's this crazy number, a magical number, um, where we need to feel it. And some people like addicts, God love them are, have an incredible high threshold for pain. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem, Right is that sometimes um, they end up dying or they need to hit their head on the concrete a few times to say, wait a minute, I got to, I got, I got to change some stuff where some people are on the exact opposite side of the spectrum. And I'll use a different analogy. Let's say we're running a marathon and some people are going to stop at mile one and change their socks. Cause they feel like a blister might be coming on. And some people get to the end of the marathon and they're like, mm-hmm. they look down, they're like, Oh my God, my feet are bloody. <laughs> You know, so having that right level of sensitivity, I think, is a really important um, part of progressive growth because we got to deal with some pain and then we also need to be aware.
1: I, uh, I, I like that, uh, the feeling the pain, actually feeling the pain instead of hiding from it, avoiding the pain. It, it seems like universal advice. Uh, so there you go. The ha- The hack is to feel the pain. You like that?
2: Oh, my God. Look at you. <laughs> look at you. Yeah.
1: Had to say it. Uh, but. Uh, okay, what's what's your advice? And I know you're not in the business of giving advice, but I'm putting you on the spot anyway. Um, okay, how do I
2: think people- you know, Dave? I think in some kind of way, you and I live in a very similar way, and like, but like, like almost like parallel universes, right? Like, I think I think that in many ways we think in the same ways. We're looking for efficiency. We're looking for authenticity. We're looking for you know ways to maximize the human expression. And, and, so, and then we have a little bit slightly different attuned vernacular. And so oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you. And so I just want to make sure I like, I'm laughing on the other side going, this is funny.
1: Oh, likewise, so. I appreciate you too. And I'm just teasing you about it because I know that we're, we're totally aligned on, on the questions we're asking. And, um, and I'm, uh, I'm working on using the language for the, the biohacking community that, you know, that, that gets, oh yeah, I, I think I could do that. Mm. Uh, and sometimes there's also the. The wanting, or, or just just the allowing to say, you know what, I I wanted to do it faster. Like I I I didn't have to have the puritanical suffering for multiple lifetimes, or the 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 Buddhist, the the slow path to enlightenment is you sort of do nothing, and after you've been through like ten thousand lifetimes or something, maybe you'll get there. And then there's the the medium path, which uh, takes a few lifetimes, but at least you're working on it. And then there's the fast path. Uh, you can do it in this life, but you might go nuts if you fail. And I'm like, give me that one uh, because <laughs> that's just my personality type. I, 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 I'm willing to take risks for, for great rewards um, as long as the rewards are, are worth it and not Hungry Ghost. Oh, I'll be happy when I get that. And like, do uh, That That's not the response you want either. So we were uh, when I distracted you with my hack comment, we were uh, we were talking about something else there.
2: Well, I, I don't know, right before this, we were talking about the, the universal understanding of like feeling pain. Ah, uh, there we go, and yeah. The and va- the value of that, right? uh, the sorry, real value right. of that. I was saying, but, yeah, not, that get, but, but Dave, not getting stuck in the pain.
1: There you go, That that's the flip side of, of that whole pain conversation. And okay, you're you're dealing with the, the highest level performers uh, and I've certainly seen at least what it looks like in the media. You never know on TMZ or whatever, whether it, it's real or not. But it seems like some of them really are stuck in their pain. I mean, they're, they're wallowing in it.
2: Okay. Or they're doing everything to avoid it, right? Oh, the, which causes sex, more pain. drugs, okay. and rock and roll. You yeah. know, that you know they're doing everything to avoid, it, which causes that cycle of you know the uh, not feeling anything, just numbing ourselves.
1: But in your experience, you know, there, there is no, uh, there's no one recommendation for you know truly feeling the pain and and truly dealing with it. Uh, my experience with a lot of people, including me, is at a certain point you sort of hit rock bottom. And, and all right, I don't know how to handle this anymore. I'm going to have to go somewhere else because I really feel like I don't have another choice. There's got to be a better way. Like, I don't want everyone listening to the show to have to, you know, really <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I just went to jail or I was homeless for a while or, you know, I became an addict and I suffered for years. And eventually I figured out how much it sucked and I got out of it. And like, I've interviewed Joe Polish and, you know, he, he talks about that real openly. He did all that, but like, I, I don't want to do that. I don't oh. want anyone else to do that. How, how do we How do we help them shortcut that? Okay. So
2: I don't think there's a shortcut, but I think the work, the most efficient work we can do is to line up our thoughts, words, and actions. Okay. And so how do we do that? It's like, you've heard the thought or the phrase that the longest distance in the body is from the head to the heart. And so awareness, like investing in the awareness of the internal environment, our thoughts and our words, line those two things up and have the skills to be able to to do that in any environment so that the actions have alignment. And the most powerful people are those that have thoughts, words, and actions aligned for their, let's call it mission in life, for their, you know, the the purpose and the meaning that they're exploring in what we know to be the the material life here. So that's, I I don't know. I, I don't think there's a shortcut to it, but I think that the most efficient investment that we can make in ourselves is increasing the awareness of our internal world and it is so freaking hard because it's invisible. And for years, we've had a stigma around looking within. Mm-hmm. Now, early days in philosophy, like they, that's what they did. They looked within and they, they wrestled with big problems. And then their psychology was born out of the medical model. Right. And that medical model looked at dysfunction and what was broken. And I know that makes your hair stand up. That's a crazy way to, to, to study something. But there's a great value in that right? If you can understand why something broke or how to fix something, it leads us to the conversations we are in now. And I get to stand on the shoulders of incredible giants that have used science to investigate what's good, what works, how do the best thinkers and doers from a research standpoint, organize their internal life and their external world. And there is that alignment of thoughts, words, and actions that makes it really powerful. So how do you do that? Well, mindfulness certainly um, is an important part of that process, becoming aware, and then having the skills to navigate and adjust the mental skills, if you will.
1: Okay, sounds pretty esoteric and and not very nailed down and actionable, though. And and that's okay. By the way, if 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 you could do that, I, I think you'd you'd write the next you know uh, massive spiritual tome on that because this is what. Uh, you know, every major religious tradition has been working on for thousands of years. Is is that a problem? So, it <laughs> it, it it seems though that that we're reaching the point from what you mentioned earlier around um, the ability to use heart rate variability and EEG and and just to get data about our state, fMRI, state scans uh, that that maybe maybe we can do things differently or or faster than we could before, just because we're not just we're not just sitting in a cave, looking around, wondering, uh, and and feeling and sensing and writing it down and passing it to the next generation. Uh, but but that w- it's faster. It, is that is that a safe assumption? I mean, do you see that in your in your practice uh, with your
2: clients? Oh yeah. I mean, if you look at how some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers organize their external world, is they're looking for the most accurate and the most timely feedback. So they have coaches, you know, that are on the field with them, giving them real-time feedback about move your hip this direction, one step back, not a full step back, adjust your elbow. Like they're getting real-time, mm-hmm. you know, feedback that's highly accurate. Right. And, and so they're craving, they're craving feedback loops to help them know what to change and how to change it. And so we can use artifact technology, HRV, EEG, fill in mm-hmm. the blanks. We can use that to inform the internal and so, but that I will say that, and so I invested in an EEG company probably, I don't know, eight years ago. Yep. And um, I love it. I think it's a worthwhile investment. The business venture didn't pay dividends for me, but, um, but I think that it's an important technology to pay attention to. Yeah,
1: I, I have an EEG facility in Seattle, um, yeah. you know, but it, it's, it's, it's work, but it's yeah. real science. Like there's stuff there.
2: Yeah, there's, yeah. The, yeah we can see some stuff and, and make some informed thoughts around that. So, yes, and. I, my experience with technology is that it doesn't allow for wisdom, yep. right? It will help with efficiency. And so I'm looking for both, right? So the, I don't know what replaces internal quiet observation like that that and writing. So people often ask, like, what are the most effective ways, you know, outside of technology? And I say, um, listen to yourself. I say, have great conversations with wise men and women and write, you know, because you, 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 hopefully you're not BSing yourself and you can't BS a wise person very easily, at least. So th- those are three mechanisms I think important. And you should see the technology. I love technology. You know, I think it's a really important piece for the feedback loop.
1: When, when you say hopefully you're not BSing yourself, I mean, don't, doesn't psychology as a field exist because people are so good at BSing themselves?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we,
1: I mean, come on. Like, yeah, like, like we've got I, narratives I, I, and stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have used technology to, uh, to maybe help me get wisdom. Where okay, I didn't believe I was BSing myself, but when you look at the EEG, you can see that you're BSing yourself, and and it's that mirror that lets you go. You know what? I was believing my own story. Apparently, my powers of self deception are legion. Uh, so therefore, I should you know be less trusting of you know the the angry voice in my head that you know says bad things about myself or other people etc etc part it feels like that is wisdom i just wouldn't have believed it if you know some guru in a white robe told me that but when i saw the data i was like oh man all right i i i i'm doing this and i didn't think i was and i don't want to admit that i was but i am
2: yeah and so i you know when i when i respond to that thought is that it When we are sitting across from a trained psychologist or we're sitting across um, an enlightened man or woman, you know, a a guru, if you will, or we have a technology across from us, all of those are feedback loops. Now, is technology 100% accurate? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's noisy. Is the trained psychologist 100% accurate? Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not. So, Dave, what I would suggest to you is that you're still looking for an external loop for feedback, whether it's another human, which it sounds like, um, you have low regard for the industry of psychology. Oh no, and no, it,
1: not not at all. I, I've yeah, I've done, which is fine. I'm not yeah. mad about
2: it by any means, right? Uh, uh, but
1: but I, if I'm coming across that way, that that's a mistake. I, I routinely tell people you need to go see a therapist or a psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist. Sometimes,
2: sometimes, yeah, uh,
1: and you know, all all of those are valid are valid fields. And, and so I, I was sort of joking. I said, I'm an unlicensed or an untrained psychiatrist. I, my wife's an ER doctor and she likes to, I'm a trained physician. And I go, yeah, I'm an untrained physician. Cause that means I'm not one. Right. So anyway, <laughs> that was just yeah. my internal joke there. But, yeah.
2: uh, but, but uh, I, yeah, I think, no, and I, I think yeah. that, and and there's lots of people that are like psychobabble bullshit. Like, yeah. what is it? I, you know, I'm like, not one
1: of those. It, there's great value in what you do.
2: Well, but the, it's the loop that we're looking for. Yeah. Right. And so what are those effective loops to help people be more attuned to what the truth. And like you said, we we've got these crazy invisible defense mechanisms that keep us stuck in the same loop until somebody across from us goes, or technology goes, Oh, you think you're calm, but actually your, your heart rate variability is 14. You know, Mm -hmm. like what, what, what do you mean? Like, you know, your normal age population is let's call it 75. And so, and, or maybe a licensed or trained professional guru says, So what I hear is, you know, the words, but I don't feel anything like, what's that like for you? Mm -hmm. And I go, oh God, yeah, I'm kind of emotionally dead, (laughs) you know, like, so I think that feedback loops are the end game for, um, for growth and loving the feedback loops, loving the challenge of figuring out iteration is the hard part of wanting to find your very best and be your very best on a regular basis.
1: It's funny because, uh, the feedback loops, whether it's from a Intuitive friends, a, a trained professional, uh, or you know, your aura ring. <laughs> um, right. that they're all useful. And I, I find that people listen to the show, people who are into biohacking, all they're, they're always seeking data. And what's really frustrating in, in the field of medicine, uh, psychology, and all that is you can have two different uh, doctors or trained professionals who are in the feedback loop and you get different feedback. So, so then you have to go through this trusting cycles, right? Which of these professionals is the trustworthy one? Uh, and it, and all of them will tell you they're trustworthy, and all of them believe they're trustworthy. And, and here's the weird thing: they all might actually be trustworthy and still not agree. And you're like, good god! At least when I got my ring, either I had HRV or I didn't. Right? Yeah, so right. Kinda, I know it, <laughs>
2: there's there's a freedom with that objective data, isn't there? <laughs> there's like, and you know, it's. I think it's a little bit like because we're dealing with the invisible in many ways. Like, yeah. how do you, what's a an elephant? look like to a blind person mm-hmm. like one person grabs a tail like oh it's skinny one person grabs the trunk it's like oh it's flexible you know when someone grabs a belly and they're like wow it's really massive and it's i don't know i don't know the discipline of internal medicine it feels mm-hmm. complicated to me i don't know the discipline of er you know it's like er medicine emergency medicine it feels complicated and i th- I think that we're, at, we're not at a place right now where there's a string theory for human development. Right. We're so far from that. And really, I think when we zoom out and, and we've got this opportunity maybe to see where we are now and where it's going to be in, let's say, 500 years, it's like, what are we doing? Really, what are we doing? And, and I, 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 it's great. You know, it's just kind of where we are now. And I, I want to just kind of close the loop on one piece here, which is the most powerful instrument in the world is our brain mm-hmm. and our mind, right? The combination of software, hardware—to oversimplify it—it's the most powerful instrument. We don't even know what it's doing, and if we can get more attuned yeah. to that feedback loop, holy moly, that feels like that's what we're supposed to be doing.
1: That, that's where all the all the power comes from, and and uh, certainly, and uh, in, in my own explorations here, headstrong, my book how do you turn on more energy in the brain, I I noticed that. I can put someone through two and a half times more intense personal development neurofeedback when their mitochondria work, when their their brain, the hardware that you talk about, is turned on all the way, which allows you to do with more with the software. You can do more external stuff, or you can do more inner work. But it seems like you know if you're if you're eating a diet that's not compatible with your biology, uh, you might not get very far on the personal development, fear anxiety, uh, you know, becoming high performer, all that stuff.
2: Yeah. And if your environment that you're um, encompassed within doesn't value growth and speaks in ways that are, I don't know, debilitating, negative, hostile in you know, in the growth arc. And really, it can be very sneakier. It can be very obvious that that, too plays factor in Man, yeah. you know this you know this accelerated growth
1: i think you just covered four more laws in the book in that statement and in game changers you know there's a couple laws about what your community does to you and how to use it and certainly one of my favorite laws is about weasel words you know the the words that you use on yourself or that others use uh to kind of take away your your ability and power do you have a set of words you tell the people you coach like don't you be saying that uh you know i can't or or things like that what what's your list
2: yeah i don't have like a uh, A list and I'll I'll tell you why, but I do know I have, I want to help people understand what is right for them, what words work better for them. And so there is a recent research that just came out where, you know, there's at least two different types of self-talk, motivational self-talk and instructional self-talk. And we know that self-talk, instructional self-talk is like walking yourself through the mechanical part of doing something. And that's better for fine motor skill stuff than gross motor. And so mm-hmm. motivational self-talk, which is like vibe words to your point, right? Which is like, like, fire, let's go, bring it, can't fade me. Whatever kind of that juicy stuff is for a person, that that's better for gross motor movements. Mm-hmm. And eventually we, we want to turn all of the self-talk off Right. We want to get ourselves nodding in a way that like we know that we have what it takes to adjust to the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown. And in some cases, the highest stakes. We just want that nod, that feeling behind our eyes. But self-talk matters and it can modulate. This is something that is exciting about the research. It can modulate power output. It can modulate um, experience of heat. And so in hot temperatures, people tend to shut down earlier. It's agitating, right. right? At distance types events. And so with motivational self-talk, which is that vibe words that you're talking about. Now, I would say you got to know yours. I know mine. And when I say mine out loud, you might say, that sounds cheesy. Okay. You got to know your words. So what are the words that you use that help you bring the right vibe to be you? And that we've got to go upstream a little bit. What does it look like and sound like and feel like when you're at your best? And then what are the words that support that? So what we, back to the the research, motivational self-talk is really crisp that it helps people modulate power output, meaning increase it. It helps them with oxygen consumption. It mm-hmm. helps them with a uh, rate of perceived exertion and it helps them stay in the heat longer, you know, and, um, I can't remember the exact percentages, but it was a significant difference uh, on those variables, which is pretty cool. Just by what uh, you it, say to yourself,
1: that is uh, remarkably cool. All right. Tell me about the six stages of performance, the, the way you've, uh, you've dialed this in.
2: Okay, so at the lowest form of expression is choking. And we've heard that word choking. Okay. Most people don't choke. That's something that is actually relatively rare. And I, I just want to be almost concrete. It doesn't mean that we're literally choking. It means that we're choking off access to our craft. So our mind creates constriction both in thought and then in physiological terms, constriction to eloquent movement, eloquent expression, if you will. And, and really at the highest form of performance, that's what we're working on. Like mastery is this eloquent, effortless flow of expression. You know. And so choking is the lowest, then micro choking. It's just kind of this tension. And then there is um, uh, thr- uh, performing. Then there's performing under pressure. And then there is dissolving pressure. So those are like the phases, if you will. And so there's anything from choking to dissolving pressure. And it substandard is the thought of just thriving or performing under pressure, that that there is another layer uh, that we can get to. Where you don't really
1: feel the pressure, like you, you kind of took the pressure off and you just do it.
2: Yeah, you dissolved it, yeah.
1: So, so you're, uh, not to pick on this one, uh, this one client, or we'll say the archetype of the high-performing musician who travels globally. Um, I mean, are, are most of these people in the, the dissolving pressure? Or they're like, yeah, I'm going to go on stage. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm not feeling the pressure. I'm just, I'm joyful and I'm here. I, I know a couple of people like that um, who are in front of millions and they feel nothing, when like nothing bad when they go out there. there there's no, and I know others say, to the, every time I've been on stage 10,000 times, every time I'm backstage hyperventilating.
2: Uh, what's the ratio of these you see? Yeah, that's, I think that's a one, I don't know. I think that um, that would be a great research, you know, like, like, yeah, what, what, what is the pre event experience for, let's say we could get a sample of a large sample of like a hundred elite performers. That'd be a ridiculously large sample. Maybe, maybe that's a, I mean, that's a really good idea that we could possibly do. Maybe we could do it together, but that thought I'd, I'd, I'd be up for it. Yeah. That thought is really cool. And I think I would guess right now, like an a priori, you know, thought about this would be that most are, um, they vacillate between this tension kind of survival mode mm-hmm. and then they get on stage and you'll hear people say often, I just need that first note or that first hit in the ring or that first tackle on the field. And then I settle into it.
1: And yeah, then they're in a flow state after that. And it's a ton deal, like
2: right? a, like a low flow, yeah. right? Like it's good. It's not, it's not elo- the most eloquent, but it's like a low flow state. Um, that
1: I, I think you, you nailed it. I, I, w- I would guess it's 80, 80 plus percent of those high performers still have a little bit of that. Okay. I feel the pressure. I'm going to go and I'm going to go do it. And then there's somewhere they, they just walk out there and they're, they're, they're dialed in. And, and um, I think there's some subtle thing the audience feels, but it, it is rare right and it and the really good ones who perform well under pressure you probably don't know that the pressure's there because they're good at performing like that's part of what performing is uh, but I, I think that the amount of of energy that they get from it is also different so it can be a little bit of that adrenaline of like okay i' I've got this now and and the other was like it's I, I'm showing up and I, I I'm not gonna yeah well I, I guess I have a picture with him on on my instagram um so i uh, I, I can say yeah I can say I've chatted with him um, I, I got a chance to talk to Stevie Wonder, mm. and, um, and it, it was an in-depth conversation, which was was profound. And you know, he he said, "I I just I just want to you know be here to to do God's work uh, for for you know as long and as best as I can," sort of thing. And and I I just get this feeling that when, when he goes on stage, it's not about him; it, it's about you know, doing the work and it's about service to others. And and I I just don't think he has that kind of a uh, that, that kind of a stage fright thing. I, I don't get any of that vibe or not even stage fright, just that, that pressure, but just more like I'm, I'm doing this because, because of love. Uh, and, and there are people like that out there and why is Stevie so revered? I think because we feel the love, but that that's just, you know,
2: I'm not in know, my head exercise. going that that's, that's what a strong psychological framework allows, you yeah. know, for, if you can love people and not be consumed with what they think of you, there's an incredible freedom on the other side of that. And most people, when they go on stage, and I remember like this first international moment I had, and it was uh, maybe seven, again, 17, 20 years ago, and I was backstage and everything was cool and I was feeling it and it was great. And it was my first international presentation. I was like, yeah, this is rad. And I'm there with a buddy and, um, I was just graduating. So it was about probably 20 years ago now, my, my program and the president of the school was there as well. And, um, there's a conference. And so I'm feeling great. And she's giving me this look like, yeah, this is like, look at like, this is going to be awesome. I can hear the buzz in the, in the background of the room filling up. And my buddy we're kind of like, look, uh, you know, through the crowd, through the curtain, if you will. And I was going to challenge a theory in the field. Like, who am I to do that? And I didn't quite understand what that meant. And, he my buddy nudges me. He goes, Hey, look who's in the front. I said, Oh my God, that's him. And and I look again and I'm like, now I feel my heart just boom. And wow. instant sweat. And he looked like he was eight feet tall, four hundred and fifty pounds, you know, like this massive human being, much smarter, much bigger, much more dangerous than I ever thought of. Like I was this wet behind the ears kid, if you will. And And I just feel entire flight or flight response get on. And you know what happened for me is I just circled and spiraled. What am I doing? I'm going to be exposed. Like, I don't really know. I'm pretending like I know. Oh my God. So it's this full imposter thing that's going on for me. And it was really incredible. And so um, I reached into my pocket and because I thought like, man, I just got to make sure I have my business cards. God, people are going to blast me. And oh my God. And so I reach and I grab my... And I looked down and I don't even have my email address on there. That's how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what a rookie. Like, I can't even get my frick. I just printed my card for the first time. <laughs> and so, and I look and I said, well, I, let me at least put my email on the back. And I flip my card over. And I don't know if you, I'm sure you know this, that visual spatial processing is compromised under duress. Right. And so- you know, when you do like your name or something and you have to turn it down the side of the page because, right. Yeah. So it was on my business card and I I threw a couple away because I couldn't get it right. My hands were shaking. And then I locked all of my, this was a game changing moment for me. I locked all of my attention into just having neat penmanship. Mm. And I probably got through about eight cards, something like that. And I was, I was just, just engaged in that. And my buddy goes, Hey, you're up. And I looked and my heart had changed. My focus was no longer on the threat. It was on something mundane and non-important. And that's that's when I realized like there's these stages from choking, micro choking, and it happens. It happens so fast. Our brain, our ancient brain in modern times is exceptional. It happened that fast. And that's when I realized, like, oh my God, I gotta I gotta really invest. <laughs> like I need help.
1: Then so that is that is so cool. And and you know, I think most people who get to where they are, uh, and and you see them, and you say, "Oh, like like that was easy." You, they don't talk about what you just talked about. They don't talk about you know, the twenty years of work that it took to get there. Uh, so I, I think sometimes it creates. Um, like feelings of of maybe I'm not good enough from other people because you don't see the struggle, you see the performance and, and and if it was done right, it looked easy, but that doesn't mean that getting there was easy. and so you're, you're talking about that. I, I think more people have those moments you just talked about than, than not.
2: Mm, yeah, hopefully. and I, I would bet Stevie had a plenty of them too until he finally figured out that, man, love it, love is so much easier <laughs> <Let me just laughs> he, love.
1: he must have it. it was yeah. it definitely blew my mind. He, he's a, a rare human. All right, I've got one more question for you in the time we have left. Um, tell me about this compete to create thing you did with Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll. Uh, what is it? Why did you decide to do this?
2: It was going into our first Super Bowl. And so he's extraordinary at the know how and the structure to switch on a culture where people can explore and find their best. And then my skill set is around helping people that want to be their best invest in the mental part of the game, right? The mental skills part of it. So heading into that first Super Bowl, it was like one and one equaled something. It's like a, not two, but eleven. Right. And so we're in the hallway at the training center, and he goes, "Can you feel?" It was like I don't know, three or four games left in the season. He goes, "My, can you feel this?" And I was like, "Yeah, it is rad. It is like unbelievable." to be in the building. Like people are just bouncing around, flying around, feeling really strong and sturdy, both physically and emotionally. And he goes, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in what we're doing? Now he's got 60 year history of being Mm -hmm. like masterful. And my eyes kind of got big and I didn't know what to say. And he goes, let's just write it down. And I go, yeah. And so we kind of ready break. And you know, the next day I had on the back of a napkin, all the things that I have been doing, you know, with him and separately that I thought were important, he did the same. We put it together. We had this call it a curriculum, if you will, mm-hmm. like the things that we have been doing. We're just trying to artifact or archive what we did, and um, you know. So he calls and get uh, calls Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, yeah. and he says, "Hey, um, congratulations!" It was four weeks into the job, and he says, um, "Just wanted to meet you and say hi and whatever." and I had done a little bit of work at Microsoft with a small sales group. And um, so Satya is informed on some of the stuff we're doing through Pete. And he says, I'd love to introduce you to Mike and, and and give you a sense of what we're doing, and uh, both in your company, but really what we've done as a body of work. And so that turned into um, just this beautiful relationship with Microsoft, 180,000 employees. Wow. And Satya Nadella saying in this... Um, this meeting, he's got this beautiful office overlooking, you know, Seattle proper. Um, And he says, you know, I, I, what I want to create is a meaningful place for the 180,000 people while they're here with us at Microsoft. And we have bold ambitions to do amazing things in the world. And, you know, basically we want to empower every person, organization in the world to do more, to achieve more. And it was the beginnings of his mission and the beginnings of uh, something that was coming from a very deep, rich place for for him. And so we got an opportunity and the opportunity was to work with a group of 12 and that turned into a group of, you know, 200. And that turned into a group over time of 30,000 people at Microsoft. And we worked with 30,000 people at eight hours a person. And that was 240,000 human hours of mindset training to helping people find and become their very best. And we said, Oh my God, we can't meet the demand. So we built a, on the back of a learning management system an eight-week online course. And so that is the beginning story arc, exciting, wonderful opportunity that that we've got on this company called Compete to create. And compete is Pete's central word for his philosophy. Mm, And competing is like not trying to be better than somebody, but working and striving to become your very best. And then the central word of my philosophy is to create a living masterpiece. And so, you know, the creating is the expression of of a living Uh. masterpiece. So Compete... Strive and strain to become your best, so you can create a living masterpiece. And that's the origins of our company. And it's basically we've got two products: an eight-week online course, and an eight-hour in-day experience that we've hired Olympians and sports psychologists, uh, sports psychologists to deliver. Uh, and what we think is an incredible investment of eight hours in the interior.
1: Very, uh, very cool. And it's an elegant name when you understand how it all links together. Um. It, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on Bulletproof Radio today. And because I just wrote Game Changers and I've asked hundreds and hundreds of people those three questions, I'm not going to ask them for you because I'm working on this other thing. I was in men's health uh, along with uh, Peter Thiel and a couple other people. I am actually planning to live to at least 180 years old. So question for you, how long are you going to live and how long do you want to live?
2: It's cool. I'm, I've. I thought about it. Um, I want to live in a way that has um, purpose and meaning and is like helping this planet to, to thrive. And so the duration, shit, I don't know. I mean, if you think <laughs> about Jesus, he lived 33 years old and changed the freaking globe. Buddha didn't live that long, you know, yeah. like, I don't know. I mean, James Dean changed music, you know, yeah. like, so I don't know. Um, I wish I, I was as potent as some of those names that I just mentioned. Um, I'm not sure James Dean and the Buddha were as potent, but you know, you, you know what I mean? Like I wish <laughs> I was got that a white potent. variance there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't, I don't know. And I love that you've got this target number of 180. Have you talked to Tom Ballou? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I had a conversation with him on the finding mastery podcast and he's got, you guys would vibe, I think because he's got that same desire and want, I don't have a good answer for you there.
1: It, it, it's all right. I mean, it, it, it's partly about a lot of people haven't thought about it. And so if, if you have a goal for how you want to perform, how much money you want to have and all this stuff, but you haven't thought about what I want it to look like when I'm old and, I tell you, when I'm 180, uh, I want to be highly functioning, I, I'm walking around in my own power, feeling good, looking good, and still actively giving back. And uh, that that's a very different picture of being, quote, old, because most people, they think of it, and immediately they, they they go to diapers, walkers, and putting your car keys in the fridge. and And that's their picture. <laughs> and like <laughs> right. no way man i'm not going out like that yeah uh, and no one has to and so i'm just i'm asking because when when you get a chance to talk to someone like you's you know, you've done a lot of introspection you've talked to a lot of interesting people like how much have you thought about it like like are you planning for it so it, it's it's always informative thank you for sharing
2: yeah no thanks for the question i'm gonna i'm gonna wrestle with that a bit awesome. for sure and dave before we jump i just want to say thank you um thank you for having me on i think you know there's there's challenges in our conversation that I loved. I love the sparring, oh, yeah. I love the joking, I love the intensity. I I really love that we can have that conversation because um you know, I know you've got a learned mind and a disciplined approach to to growth and so I am stoked to have the conversation with you. I just want to say thank you. Oh, you,
1: you got it man. And, yeah. and likewise, hopefully you don't mind, mind me giving you a hard time about stuff because it's it's all good fun and learning.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, well, Michael Gervais, you're Home website, I would say, was findingmastery.net. Is that sort of the best place or uh, for people to go? Yeah, that is. You want to learn more?
2: Yeah, that, that's like a funnel, if you will, of the, this capture of extraordinary thinkers and doers, and it's the podcast that uh, that we fired up to, to yeah. celebrate people.
1: But but that URL, findingmastery.net, that has your podcast, it also has links to create to compete
2: on it? Yeah, compete so, to create.
1: Oh, sorry. There you go. I said it backwards. So, compete to create. <laughs> So uh, so basically, if you're interested in, in uh, the the type of coursework and coaching that Michael has done for some of the world's very biggest names, um, you can find it there. And you can also hear about his podcast, uh, Finding Mastery, uh, on that same URL, findingmastery.net. Michael, thanks again, man. Appreciate you.
0: A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.